Well, we come to a powerful text uh, this morning in our study of John's gospel. Join me in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we will see that this text is a tremendous call for each and every one of us. None of us will be left out from what Jesus has to say to us this morning. John chapter 15, and we are picking up where we left off last week in verses 12 through 17. John 15, 12 through 17, where Jesus now moves from describing the great benefits of his gospel and all of those gospel promises we've looked at for the last two weeks to now transitioning into one specific gospel command. One command above all else, one distinguishing characteristic, one marker that should describe the true Christian And what is that command, that characteristic, that marker? Read the text with me, start in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. The emphasis is clear, it's unmistakable. Verse 12 and verse 17, they're almost identical. They're bookends for these six verses. Verse 12, this I command you, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Speaking of fellow believers. And you cannot miss Jesus' command here. Now, let's relate this call to love one another to what has come before and see the flow of thought here. The flow of thought is this. Life in the vine, we've looked at for the last two weeks, verses one through 11. Life in the vine must lead to love for the branches. That's the flow of thought. Life in the vine, if we truly are attached to Christ, That must lead to love for the branches, his people. Let's put it this way. Love for one another is the necessary fruit that grows in the soil of saving faith. Look at verse five and connect our passage with verse five. Verse five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. What is this fruit? Well, the fruit is obedience to verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. You could even put it this way, where there is no love for one another, referring to fellow believers, where there is no love for one another, there is no true abiding, saving faith. Where there is no love for the people of God, there is no real attachment to his son. That's the flow of thought. 
in this connection here between true and saving and abiding faith and a love for God's people. This is not just here in John 15, but this is made abundantly clear throughout John's writings. I'm just gonna focus on 1 John. But just listen to these passages. 1 John, start in chapter two, and you'll see the similarities between what we'll read and what Jesus says here in chapter 15. 1 John 2.10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's abiding faith there. Love for fellow believers is evidence of abiding faith, real attachment to Christ. And then verse 11 gives the flip side of all this, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. He's not attached to Christ. He's not in the light. There's no abiding faith. In 1 John chapter three, we read this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? Let's put it in John 15 language. How do we know that we've been severed from this world and grafted into Christ? How do we know that? Is it by the theology we know, the doctrine that we hold to? John says it's through love because we love the brethren. We love one another. That's the fruit of the branch attached to the vine which John then gives the alternative, he who does not love, he who does not love abides, not in Christ, but in death. So love for the brethren is a spiritual life-death issue. This is repeated in John 3.23. This is his commandment, clearly referring back to John 15. This is his commandment. What is it? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and how do we show the genuineness of that confession? We love one another. This is his commandment. There's two things, though. Believe, love. We believe, we love. They go together. We love one another just as he commanded us. You will know them by their fruits, specifically the fruit of love. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. Again, love is a proof of abiding faith. But remember the promise in John 15, not only do we abide in Christ, but Christ abides in us. That's what we see here. Where there's love, we have evidence that he abides in the believer. Finishing verse 23. Move into 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. We're going to see that connection. If we're loved by Christ, it's imperative that we love one another. We'll see that in John 15. Why? For love is from God. Love flows from the gardener to the vine to the branches. And thus everyone who loves He shows that he is born of God, changed in heart and grafted to the one saving vine and knows God. That's evidence of saving faith. Verse eight, again, the contrast. But the one who does not love does not know God. There's no love, there's no faith. Why? Because God is love. So all of those are clear statements. Clear statements that life in the vine necessitates a love for the branches. That love for one another is the most 
Distinguishing fruit, mark it, the most distinguishing fruit that grows in the soil of saving, abiding faith. It's quite a call for us, isn't it? Tremendous passage. It's a call for us because we live in a culture that prizes individualism, don't we? It's the very opposite of love. Concerned with ourself. That's only made more difficult when you couple a proud individualism with a culture that is so eager to cancel one another out and even demonize anyone who does not believe exactly what you believe with the same passion that you believe it. And when you put those two things together, love is just bullied out of the equation. And it would be easy to say, that's right. That's what the world does. They're individualistic and they're canceling one another. Well, if we're honest, these are issues within the church, aren't they? I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. Christians are very good at biting and devouring one another. We're good at canceling one another out, growing bitter against one another. This passage is for us. Now let's take a step back even further. Let's put this command to love one another into its early Friday morning context. Again, remember, we're only a few short moments from Jesus' betrayal, his trial, and his death. So John 15 is a part of Jesus' final farewell to his apostles. It's a long goodbye. It started back in chapter 13 in the upper room. It lasts through chapter 16, and then Jesus prays for his people in chapter 17. But chapters 15 and 16, they're unique to Jesus' final farewell. In chapters 13 and 14, Jesus sought to comfort his apostles. He washed their feet in chapter 13. He assured them of their forgiveness and reconciliation with his father. You remember back in chapter 14, he calmed their fears. Do not let your hearts be troubled. There's assurance, comfort. But now as chapter 14 concludes, they leave the upper room. They begin to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. This change of scenery comes a change of tone, purpose. And Jesus now in chapters 15 and 16, he does not comfort his people. He warns them. He warns his apostles of what is in store after he leaves. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus warns them about the false gospels that will come their way. He emphasizes there's only one true vine. It's him, only one vine planted, sent by the Father. I am the true vine. In verses 18 through chapter 16, Jesus also warns about coming gospel persecution. The hatred, the world will rage against Christ's church. You see that in verse 19. Those are two outside threats that will come against God's people. We must be on guard against them. Gospel perversion, gospel persecution. Be on guard. That's the warning. But now, in the middle of those two outside threats, Jesus deals with an inside threat 
these apostles and all believers must not only be aware of, but must actively and constantly fight against with all of our might. And that is the threat of disunity amongst God's people. Infighting within the family of God. Resentment, animosity, that biting and devouring one another. The bitterness, the selfishness, the lovelessness that can destroy the very fabric of the church. Can stagnate our sanctification can tarnish our testimony to the world, pollute our evangelism. Look back to chapter 13. Chapter 13, look at verse 34. This is what Jesus has said back there. Verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And Jesus says, here's why. Here's the effect of selfless, sacrificing, humble, caring, patient, forgiving love. Verse 35, by this, above all, by this characteristic, all men, the unbelieving world, will know that you are my disciples. What is that characteristic? That you love one another. One commentator put it this way. Sad to tell, we Christians are ever capable of describing the delights of love in the new heavens and the new earth while still hoarding our resentments, animosities, and bitterness down here. He's from a different country. That's why he writes, as one wag has put it, to live above with those you love, undiluted glory. To live below with those you know, quite another story. And we laugh, it's funny, but it's true, isn't it? It's true. How opposite Jesus' command in chapter 15 is for us. We cannot wait until heaven to love one another. We must love one another now because both our sanctification and our evangelism depends upon it. But I want to add one thing here. And I believe this is the specific application Jesus has in mind with these six verses at this point in his final goodbye. Not only, not only does the world need to see this love evangelism, but we each need to experience this love. Why? Because our love for one another is the necessary shield that will protect us and fortify us and sustain us when the world's hatred rises up against us. It's our love for each other. That's the flow of thought into verses 18 and following. Verses 12 through 17, love one another, bookended. Why? Because verse 18 and 19 are coming. Because, look at verse 19, the world will hate you. And, and he uses the word love. If, the, if you were of the world, the world would what? They'd love its own. They'd love you. But because you are not of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Don't expect to receive love from the world. No, that love, that care, 
that encouragement can only come from those who are not of this world. I'm going to look at that more next week. But for now, understand, love for one another cannot be overemphasized. It is the most distinguishing fruit that proves you are attached to the vine. Life in the vine necessitates a love for the branches. John 13, it is the greatest apologetic argument for the truthfulness of the gospel. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And connecting this with verses 18 and following, love for one another is the necessary fortification when the world's hatred comes against us. And again, according to Jesus, that hatred is coming. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready? Do we love one another? Are we fortified with a selfless love for one another? Are we shielded by this Christian love? Again, this is a powerful text for us, so applicable. So Jesus turns from those outside threats to now this inside threat. He gives us six motivations, six motivations to combat this inside threat that could destroy the church even before the world gets to it. Six motivations to let bitterness and animosity and individualism and selfishness go. Six motivations to love one another in a selfless, sacrificing, caring, forgiving, trusting, nurturing, loyal, restoring way. Let's look at the first three motivations this morning. Let's start with motivation number one. Motivation number one. We are to love one another because love is commanded. Let's start here. Love is commanded. Jesus does not leave us with an option to love. This is not a suggestion to love one another. No, he leaves his apostles with a command to love. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Verse 17, this I command you. This is my law. Translated that way, this is my law. This is my charge. This is my expectation of you as your master. The word commandment here, it's the same word Jesus uses to describe the 10 commandments. Same word. And I don't think we would see those commandments as optional. I think we might find it weird if somebody said, well, I know that God has commanded me not to murder, but you don't know what they did to me. And you don't know what they said to me. And you don't know how they treated me. But that's exactly how we justify withholding love for one another, right? Breaking the other command. To withhold love is a matter of disobedience at its core. It's a rejection, really. It's a rejection of Christ's authority over us. Now, let's make a few observations here. First of all, first of all, notice that Jesus uses the word commandment. This is my commandment in the singular. Commandment in the singular. 
Now, in verse 10, if we keep my commandments in the plural, it's obviously other commandments that we need to obey. But here, Jesus focuses on one commandment. Why? Because when you boil every other interpersonal, interrelational commandment down, you always end up with this one command. Do you love? Always comes down to this command. Do you love? It's the priority command. This is the core commitment command. Command that must take precedence. From here, obedience to the commandments will follow. Second observation, notice that Jesus does not mention the command to love God here. Is that what we're used to? Love God, love your neighbor. But he doesn't do that here. He jumps to love one another. Why? We'll look back at chapter 14, verse 15. Because Jesus has already stated this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so a love for God, in this case, a love for Christ. Christ is putting himself in the place of God here. Love God. He says, now love me. A love for Christ will determine our love for others. So here's the application. If there is a deficiency of a love for one another, there is a deficiency in our love for Christ. That's the connection. You cannot separate these two commands. Love Christ, love one another. A true love for Christ will not stay inside. It's not individual. It will overflow to a love for his people. If you love me, you will keep this commandment to love one another. Third, third observation. Notice who the recipients are of this love. The recipients are commanded to love one another. This is specific language for other believers, other believers. So this is not Leviticus 19, the command, love your neighbor or love the stranger. This is a call to love the people of God primarily, uniquely, especially. This is Galatians 6. Paul writes, let us do good to all people. Yes, love the world, love the unbeliever. Absolutely, that is a necessity. But there's a love that is, notice the word that Paul uses, especially, translate it, most of all, Particularly, primarily, we are to love those who are of the household of faith. And if we are honest here, and if we are not thinking of how the person next to us should be applying this, this should bring conviction to us. Because our love for one another, our love for the people in this room should be weightier and stronger and more enduring than the love we have for any unbeliever. Can ask the question why, answer, because each of us are a part of a new and special family. This is the family of God. Each of us are recipients of Christ's special love. For to model Christ then, we are each to show a special love for Christ's people. 
leads into a fourth observation. Fourth observation, Jesus uses the present tense imperative here, present tense command. So let's translate it this way. Keep on loving one another. Keep on loving. Make this the pattern of your life. We don't love others only when they deserve our love or we think they're worthy of our love. Now, this is the pattern of our life. Keep on loving one another. And then a fifth observation here. And this is where it gets good. Notice who the model of this love is, the model of this love. Because it would be easy to say, love one another as the person who sits on the far left loves the people in the church. That'd be easy because they fail. And also on the far right, not just far left, they fail. But finish verse 12, just as I have loved you. Christ is not only the vine through which our love for one another flows, but Christ is also the criteria for how our love for one another is to be measured. And thus, one another love is love that is offered even when undeserved. Think of Christ leaving heaven for earth. We did not deserve that. This is love that humbles itself in service for one another. Think of Jesus washing his apostles' feet. This is love that sacrifices for one another. Think of the cross. This is love that works to its own hurt. Think of Jesus' coming betrayal. This is love that is patient. He was so patient with his apostles. Love that bears others' burdens. Love that encourages to holiness. Love that continues when others fail you. This is how Christ loved us. This is the measure and the model of how we are to love one another. Look back to John 13, one. What started this final goodbye, verse one at the end, John tells us that Jesus loved them, loved his own to the end, to the extreme. Now in John 15, Jesus says, that extreme love is commanded of you. In fact, we can even connect this back to what Jesus said in verse 9, 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, the Father's love for Christ, I have also loved you. So Jesus loves us with the same love the Father has for him. Now trickle down, he calls us to love one another with the same love he has for us. And so I hope none of us right now are satisfied with our love for one another. This is why J.C. Ryle wrote this. A precept like this should stir up in us great searchings of heart. That is true. At this point, these are the questions we should be asking. Why am I withholding love from my brothers and sisters in Christ? Why? Or we can ask the what question, what am I valuing more than the bond I have with others in Christ? 
Who can I reach out to in love? How can I love others in a more Christ-like way? These are searchings of the heart. Back to the quote. This command to love one another condemns the selfish, ill-natured, jealous, ill-tempered spirit of many professing Christians with a sweeping condemnation. Sound views of doctrine and knowledge of controversy will avail us nothing at last if we have known nothing of love. Without love, we may pass muster very well as churchmen. But without love, we are no better, says St. Paul, than sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Where there is no Christ-like love, there is no grace, no work of the Spirit, and no reality in our religion. Blessed are they that do not forget Christ's commandment. They are those who shall have the right to the tree of life and enter the celestial city. The unloving Christian is unmeet for heaven. This is the first motivation to love one another. It's commanded by our master, our loving master. Leads into a second motivation, and this is necessary to follow up the first one with, because we will never love one another simply because it's commanded. It's not how this will work. We need motivation number two, which is this. We are to love one another because we are the recipients of the greatest and most precious love possible. We are the recipients of the greatest and most precious love possible. The axiom is this, the more we cherish the love of Christ, the more we are astounded by it, put in those terms, the more we're stunned by it, left speechless because of it, the more that is true, the more we will give ourselves away in love to others. Goes back to that quote from last week. We read this, Christ's love reveals to me the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in so doing, when we see that love, in so doing, it lures my heart away from love of self and leaves me enthralled by him instead. The more lovely he appears, the more self fades in the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. The more we cherish Christ's love, the more we are humbled by Christ's love, the more we are freed to love one another. We do not have to love ourselves any longer. Christ loves us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us, compels us. Well, that's Jesus' point. Look at verse 13. I'm commanding you to love. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus knows what's coming 
He's used that phrase, lay down his life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's referring to that coming sacrifice that he will offer. At this point, in this early morning, Jesus knows the hurt that is in store for him. He knows the physical pain that he will experience. The wolf will kill the shepherd. But even more, he knows the spiritual agony that is about to fall on him. He knows he will be abandoned by his father. He knows our sin will be credited to him. He knows he will experience undeserved wrath and holy hatred against sin. He knows all of that. It's laying down his life. And yet amazingly, amazingly, he is committed to that awful cross for us. Why? Why? Because he loves his own. He's driven by love. And it's not just any love. Verse 13, this is the greater. This is the greatest love. It's the love of undeserved sacrifice. And before we're tempted to think that Christ loves us because of how lovely we are, before we're tempted to think that, just think of how much we are like the men Jesus is talking to in verse 13. These men are weak and fickle. They're about to fall asleep on Jesus in the garden. These are men who are proud in heart. They've been arguing earlier this evening about who's the greatest among them. These are men who doubted Jesus, who questioned Jesus, who told Jesus he was wrong. Men who will soon forsake him. They'll hide in a room in fear. I don't know about you, but that describes me. You know, despite all of these failures and weaknesses, Jesus loves them with a love that says no to self-preservation. He says he loves them with a love that says yes, not only the physical death, but spiritual death on our behalf. Paul said this, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We cannot, we cannot grasp this love. And we sang it earlier, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. We cannot grasp this love in full. And thus the application is clear. If it is true that Christ offered himself in love for us, the unlovely, how can we withhold our love from those purchased by Christ? How can we do that? Do we think our love is too great for them? That they're not worthy of our love? It's Luke 7, 47 principle. If you've been loved much, forgiven much, you will love much. The love of Christ controls us. We're humbled by his love. And thus we love one another. That's the second motivation. 
leads into a third motivation to love one another here. A third motivation. Not only do we love one another because it's commanded and because we are recipients of the greatest and most precious love possible, we also must love one another because motivation number three, because every believer is a friend of Christ. Every believer is a friend of Christ. Verse 13 again, greater love as no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus adds this, you are my friends. You are my friends. The word friend here is philos. Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is love that is dear. You can just simply translate it, one who is loved. But within this love, there's a devotion, there's a loyalty. It's wrapped up in this word. And this is so key, really shocking for the apostles to hear because friendship in the ancient culture was far more special than it is today. So we're not talking about friendship like acquaintances. And Jesus is certainly not talking about Facebook friends. I don't know half the people who I'm friends with on Facebook. I don't even know them. You are my friends. Jesus is talking about a special intimacy, a relational closeness. Again, a devotion, a loyalty. Back in John 11, Jesus called Lazarus our friend. Our friend. And then he refers to him as he whom I love. John 3, the best man at a wedding is the friend of the bridegroom. So there's a specialness here, a closeness, a tightness. In fact, friendship was how someone spoke about being a part of the inner circle of a king, of a master. I think that's what Jesus is referring to here. Those friends were privileged to know the king's thoughts, the king's plans. In fact, that's the picture Jesus is painting. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, mere tools. Why? For a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. It's a great contrast of our identity in Christ. Slaves were considered mindless instruments in the first century. Friends were cherished confidants. Slaves were kept in the dark. Friends were privy to the master's thoughts. Slaves were held at arm's length. Friends were taken into the master's trust. Slaves had no access to their master. Friends, though, had access to the master's own house. Say, identity, you are. My friends, we are Christ's friends. And amazing, the Old Testament. Moses, described as a friend of God. Abraham, a friend of God. And now here, Jesus says, we are his friends. We're friends of the master. 
but not just any master, the master. Not just any king, the king. So think about our identity. Think about our identity here. We have been brought into Christ's royal court. That's the picture. We are a part of his inner circle. We are cherished by the king. And this king of kings has pledged his loyalty to us. This is our identity. That's why Jesus says, finish verse 15. All things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You become a part of my inner circle. I brought you into my confidence. I've shared my thoughts with you. I haven't kept you at arm's length. I haven't kept anything from you. I've shared my mind, my plans. I've given you the privilege of divine revelation. I've taught you about my coming cross. I've predicted my resurrection. I've informed you of my future return. I've kept nothing back. In fact, chapter 14 says, I'm actually gonna come back for you through the Holy Spirit and indwell you. I've opened myself up to you like a master would a close confidant. That's what Jesus is saying here. You are my friends. You are cherished. I am loyal to you. Which leads then to the necessary question. Yes, this might be how we think of ourselves. But here's the question. Is this how we think of our fellow believers? Yes, I'm in the inner circle with Christ. But do we think that of our fellow believers? Do we think of our fellow believers as friends of God who are cherished by God? Beloved members of Christ's inner circle to whom the king has pledged his loyalty and care. Is that how we think of fellow believers? Or do we see them as problems, inconveniences, below us, for whatever reason? Those who, un who are unworthy of our love for them, our time for them, our care, our concern for them. And so you can see the application. You can see it. If that is who our fellow believers are, friends of the king, all of them, from the weakest saint to the strongest, most mature believer, that is who our fellow believers are, friends of the king, then how can we withhold our love from them? How can we not pledge our loyalty to them? Are our standards to love one another higher than our kings, higher than Christ's? And again, to quote Ryle, he writes this. The weakest, the lowest, the most ignorant, the most effective disciple is not to be despised. All are to be loved with an active, self-denying, self-sacrificing love. When we fail to love one another, we fail to remember our identity as fellow friends of the king. But notice the end of verse 14. 
we also fail to remember that though we are friends of Christ, Christ is still our master, still deserving full obedience. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And what command is Jesus talking about here? The command to love one another. Friends of the king love not only the king, but those whom the king loves. Lovelessness for fellow believers is the threat Jesus knows the church will face once he leaves. In fact, some commentators even see these verses here as the center of Jesus's final farewell. It's a threat from the inside that carries with it the potential to tear any church to shreds. And it's the threat far greater than hatred from the world. Hatred from the world will never destroy the church. It'll make it stronger. No, the threat that can destroy the church is the threat of an individualistic Christianity. A cancel culture Christianity for one another. A proud lovelessness, an arrogant selfishness. Because this is what stagnates sanctification. This is what weakens evangelism. And this is what leaves us defenseless, alone, when the hatred of the world rises up against us. The prayer is that we would seek to actively love one another just as Christ has loved us, motivated by his command, motivated by his cross, and motivated by our identity as beloved friends of the king. We'll pick it up there next week. Father, this is certainly a high calling and I trust a text that brings great conviction to us. Forgive us, Lord, for having this lovelessness. Forgive us, Lord, for being wrapped up in ourselves. May you expand our understanding of your love for us, Christ's love for us, his sacrifice, expand that so that we would be freed to love one another. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.